Hello and welcome to the Virtual Clinical Podcast. I'm your host, Nicole Sunderland. This is a spot where nurses share their stories and their experiences to provide mentorship as well as help nurses and soon-to-be nurses just like yourself along the way. I hope you enjoy these episodes. All right, welcome to season two, episode one of the Virtual Clinical Podcast. I am joined today by my friend and colleague, Kirsten Peterson. I worked with Kirsten at my current job right now uh, for a period of time, and who also served on research council with me, which was great. And Kirsten is actually a friend of a family member's, which is like the smallest world ever, small circle. And we have so much to discuss today. She has literally lived all over the country in different spots. And currently lives near Chicago, Illinois, um, or Illinois. I forget that there's no noise in Illinois. It's fine. Forgive me. Uh, who currently works in hospice care, but her care has her her nursing career has spanned from an acute care to neurosurgical critical care, and now to hospice care. So the range of clinical care is great. So welcome, Kirsten. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here and so excited to see you and talk to you again. It was, uh... I'm, I'm so excited to be hosting podcast episodes again. I had such a unique semester at school. So I just started my DNP at Penn. Yeah. I was, like, I was like, oh, I can handle this. Like maybe I can do a podcast episode. But then I literally just dedicated my days to reading and making sure that I knew the content and making sure I was getting used to the schedule. And I was like, well, the podcast is going to wait a little bit. But it's fine because season two is going to be great and I'm happy to start it uh, right now. So give us a little bit of your beginnings. Where did you go to school to get your nursing degree and what was that like? Yeah, so I think what's important to note was that when I chose to be a nurse, I was in high school and I was in the middle of trying to apply to college. And my parents sat me down and they were like, you can't have a desk job with your ADHD. You can't do desk stuff. What do you want to do? That's not a desk. And my mom was like, you should become a gym teacher. She was like super into me becoming a gym teacher. And so I was looking at all these different schools, but I was also um, a committed tennis player. And I knew that I wanted to play in college, but I knew, you know, I knew my strengths. I wasn't going to play D1 by any stretch of the imagination. Um, So I was looking at D3. And I looked at Wheaton College, which is a small Christian college out here in Wheaton, Illinois, and really great division three program, like top 30 in the nation for tennis. The coach, my coach, which she'll never tell anybody is, was actually the first ever division three NCAA uh, singles champion. The first year that the NCAA was actually made for women. That's very Yeah, she'll never tell anybody, and she tries to get them to hide the trophy that they put in the display case. She tells it's a horrible picture, and it turns out it was a small world. Her cousin is a neurosurgeon at U of Chicago, but he was my father's best friend and best man at his wedding, so I've known this man my whole life. Didn't know. amazing. Yeah, and he was like, oh, Kirsten's going to play tennis? He emailed my dad, because he still lives out here in Chicago, and my dad was like, how do you know? And it turned out that he had talked to Jane, uh, my cousin. And unfortunately, we didn't have a traditional BSN program. They had a 3-2 program where you spent three years at Wheaton and then two years somewhere else. And you kind of fit 
yeah, you fed into those programs. And those programs were Vanderbilt, Rush, Johns Hopkins, like some of the really great nursing schools in the country. Yeah. And I was like, oh, you know, I'll go to Vanderbilt. And I sat down with the lady my freshman year of college. And she was like, well, it's going to be $120,000, like blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like <laughs> I can't swing that. Like, oh goodness. So I completed four years at Wheaton. I actually got my degree in sociology. So that's where my, uh, you know, side passion of criminology comes from. Yes. And I completed all the health, like all the prerequisites. I actually got to have human anatomy with a cadaver as an undergrad, which is a very um, unique experience. So I've gotten to open people's chests up. I've taken people's brains out. It was a very interesting experience. So <laughs> it prepared me well to learn how to touch people. And then when I was looking at nursing school, because I knew I wanted to be a nurse, um, you know, that didn't change through undergrad. I was looking at Eastern. Um, you know, another small Christian college, just by coincidence, right, you know, near Villanova. Really great program. I think when I graduated from Eastern, I had like 600 clinical hours. By the time I graduated, I had spent so much time out in the field. And so Eastern was just, it was like a click. Uh, I loved the program. The professors were amazing. My classmates were amazing. I ended up making one of my closest friends whose name is also Kirsten. She was one of my bridesmaids. So shout out to her. Um, we like to tease each other. She spells it K-I-E and I'm K-I-R and K-I-E is Norwegian and K-I-R is Swedish. And you don't, you know, like European friends. Well, it used to be, you know, that you didn't cross that line. The Swedes were the Swedes and the Norwegians were the Norwegians. You didn't cross that line. But we found out recently that I'm actually Norwegian and Swedish because my great-grandmother crossed the line and her family disowned her for having a child with a, with a Norwegian. That's amazing. <laughs> she like, was also excited about it too. Oh yeah. She was yelling at me. Like, I knew you were one of us. <laughs> so. Exactly. <laughs> Eastern was just a great program. It was so close to my home. I got to live at home again. Um, you know, it was fun to be a 23 year old, you know, an adult living at home, but I just, it was a blast. And the program was amazing. We got to go to so many clinical areas. We were at Lankanaw, we were at CHOP, we were at all some of the best hospitals that I've seen. We were at Chester County Hospital. Um, we just did so much and I loved it. And that was the tough thing. I knew for sure that I hated labor and delivery. I passed out my first day and I'm in had, the same boat with you. Yeah, it is. I don't know how Sarah does it. I, I just like, oh, I can't, you know, and when I fainted, even though it had nothing to do with what we were looking at, cause we were just getting a tour. I was laying there and I woke up and the pediatrician was standing over me and she goes, we have snacks hidden everywhere and that was like this is a bizarre world like I don't know if I can handle this and I'm delivering <laughs> delivering kids but we have snacks it's fine yeah <laughs> no. oh, oh gosh I watched a c-section and I was in the corner and I was like screaming internally put it back put it back put it back so I was so overwhelmed but then everything else, I just had so much fun in all of the different fields. And when people were like, oh, I really found the thing I want to do, like pediatri pediatrics or, you know, labor and delivery or some, some of my classmates really loved the ICU. And I was like, I don't know. I just yeah. love it. And I can't really decide what I want to do. And so 
when I got out of nursing school, when I graduated and I was um, applying for jobs, I just was applying to everything. And I thought I was going to be a psych nurse because I, um, I was actually supposed to start at Bryn Mawr Hospital on their psych unit. Um, but oddly enough, the two nurses that were supposed to retire to open up my job did not des- decided not to retire. Okay. So that was kind of a jumble because it was like, I was set up for a job based on two people retiring. Yeah. Well, in April. So I had stopped applying to jobs. Right. And then I find out after graduation that like, we're so sorry, the job didn't open up, which is like totally understandable, you know, but it just meant I was applying very late to jobs because by then, you know, people have graduated, they've already gotten their externships and it was just a bummer. So I was doing late late what year, what year was this that you were applying i'm just curious oh yeah 2016 okay was when I, yeah and it was go ahead sorry oh no no go ahead <laughs> i was just gonna say like when, when i graduated in 2008 uh, i graduated in december and then like nursing had a lockdown like the jobs were just not hiring and for some reason people were uh just not hiring in pennsylvania and so that's kind of why I, I felt like I, I was, I'm never going to get a job. I think that's one of the most stressful things as a new nurse is like, you feel like you're never going to get a job after you graduate. You apply to like 60 places, at least I did, because there was no oh. hiring. And I also have no clue how my students, like they came to me this semester, the ones that stayed on campus and they, and I was like, so what do you want to do with your career? And they were like, oh, I want to do this. Like, and just named off a specialty. And I was like, how do you know what you want to do as a specialty, right? Like right then and there. Like I am baffled by that because I didn't know what I wanted to do and what I wanted to be, I guess like quote unquote specialized in. Mm-hmm. I was in the same boat. Labor delivery was not, was not, was not my cup of tea. I like the C-sections, how, you know, like how you kind of pass it. I like the C-sections because to me, that was like surgical. We're solving a problem. We can get in, boom, here we go. But birthing processes, I just knew that I was not going to be the nurse that could deliver kids like that Mm-mm. as a nurse. Like I just wasn't, I was like, um, that, no, I love people. That, I'm going to have to get Sarah on this podcast, by the way, now, now that you mentioned her, I'm going like, to tag her in this post, and be like, Hey, Sarah, you, you need to be on the podcast next. Explain to us how you do what you do because right. none of us- please tell the world how you can be a labor and delivery nurse. I think she, I, she's no longer at Penn state. She's now in a private practice, I think office space, but it'd be yeah. great to pick her, her brain over the years that she spent in labor and delivery and just be like, how, and she's so happy about it. Like <laughs> she's so happy about what she does. And I, every single labor delivery nurse, like, I just love what I do. Like I've never met any labor delivery nurse that hates what they do. No, I, the rest, we show up at research council and she, and I cannot remember her friend, her friend's name, but they were so like bubbly and happy. Natalie. Emily. And I'm sitting over there like from trauma med surge going, oh my gosh, I'm so cranky. And I don't even know what happened last night. And they were just so nice. And I'm like, why am I such like, just, I, I wish I had a different attitude some days, but I'm so tired and they were always so happy. And we shared, remember we shared Three South used to share that hallway yes. with Lindy. And it was so not awkward, but it was like we had things going on down the hallway that were getting interesting. You know, mm-hmm. we had a patient who was in there for, I think, I don't know, he, he hadn't even left by the time that I left. And he had been there for a year. Wow. He had got 
for the year, the week that I started. And it was just like, you have him down one hallway and then you've got these brand new mothers who never hit the call light. And if they do, you can hear them going, I'm so sorry, it's 2 a.m., but I'm having some pain. Can I get an ice pack or some water? And you're just like, what is this crap? <laughs> That's probably why it's so nice, right? It's like, oh. <laughs> oh yeah, like the red, you can hear screaming down the end of our call and we're like, it's okay. You know, it's fine. It's all right, we got this, we got this, we're cool, it's fine. Oh man. So why, like, how did you choose to, to be an RN? Like, like, what was the moment where, cause you, you know, your parents sat you down they were like, you have too much ADHD. And my parents didn't sit me down. They were just like, you need to choose something. And I was like, well, nursing sounds cool, right? Yeah. What, what made it, what, what was an impactful moment that probably made it for you where you decided nursing is definitely going to be for me and made you go not only to Wheaton to get a sociology degree, but then to Easton to go through this remarkable program? Um, before they even diagnosed me when I was, she actually had me diagnosed at four. And this was back in the nineties when, I mean, you look at the amount of research for ADHD with girls and it is vastly um, not just underrated versus the amount of uh, research that's done for ADHD with boys. But my mom could tell. Um, and my parents being that observant and being that honest with me kept me open to the fact that there were limitations, but that I could also do anything that I wanted if it was on my feet. And so when I was looking at that, I, you know, my aunt's a nurse, my mom's sister, and she's been a nurse since the eighties. And so it was, a, it was amazing to hear all of her stories and she's a great storyteller. But I was actually sitting on the couch when I was a senior and I was watching the end of the spear and it's an amazing story about a group of Christians who actually a few of them went to Wheaton, they're, um, they're alums and they went down to Ecuador to speak with a tribe that was still one of the last cannibalistic tribes, at least known to um, the modern world. and this group of women and their husbands were there and their husbands were attacked by the uh, tribesmen and were actually killed with spears. But the women stayed. They decided that we need to stay. There was also some issues with leaving and it turned out that the tribe got really sick, something similar to pneumonia. And one of the women, I can't remember if she was a nurse or a doctor, she had some kind of medical thing and she created these like seesaws out of wood to help keep the fluid from moving, you know, from staying in the lungs and drowning them pretty much. And that's when the tribe opened up to them and they were welcomed. And, you know, they came to, you know, the tribe came to Christ and it was just this incredible story that even though some of these men were the people that they killed, you know, had killed their husbands, they had done this. So it was, that was the moment I knew watching that movie. It was like, oh, you can do a lot of incredible things with nursing. That's amazing. So, I think it's amazing to hear, to hear people's reasons for that moment that says, I'm going to be a nurse and gets down to like the nitty gritty of what that means. It sounds like you are also very um, attuned to your own 
um, religious identity, which I think is very important for people because I believe that, you know, people want to argue a lot about different religions and things like that. And that's not what this podcast is for, but finding your purpose through faith is something that I think that a lot of students perhaps struggle with. Um, there's a lot of nursing programs that are founded with faith, Villanova, <laughs> Eastern, um, LaSalle, is a yeah. Gonzaga was a Christian Brothers, not Christian Brothers, excuse me. It was a Jesuit. Um, so there's a lot of different programs that find their belongings and servancy from what this movie sounds like, you're serving a tribe who once, you know, hated you and killed your husbands turned out to be one of the biggest things for those wives to really help those people. Mm -hmm. I think that's amazing. Yeah. And it's incredible because I got to hear one of the women talk at Wheaton. She came to, we have something called chapel, which you have to go to like Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And it's usually like a speaker or our president giving a, you know, a little chapel talk. And she was there. Um, She, I think has now passed on. Um, Mm -hmm. But it was incredible to hear her story of, um, you know, she's written many books. Um, it's also really amazing that she practiced the art of forgiveness. Yeah. You really think of, because I, I don't know the story. You're telling me the story for the first time. And if somebody killed my husband, I don't know what I would do. Um, and it's quite amazing to hear the practice of forgiveness, which I think a lot about forgiveness. I think about the Amish community. Mm-hmm. And the first thing that they said when that horrible shooting happened in Lancaster yeah, was we forgive, we forgive the shooter. And that is such a powerful moment of, of how to move on. And I'm sure that we'll hit the, this like theme as we talk about your role in hospice care, but that's just so life-changing when you, when you hear the story from this lady and this tragic thing happened, and she, but she forgave them and then helped fix them that's, that's so compelling. Yeah. And I think that plays into spirituality, you know, it doesn't matter, you know, yeah, as you said, this is not the, this is not the kind of podcast to discuss, you know, uh, debate like religion, because you can have spiritual, we've seen patients with spirituality who don't have, you know, they're like, I don't really, you know, describe myself as any kind of religion out there, but they are very spiritual. They know themselves. Right. Right. There's a soul aspect, you know, when we talk about my, you know, taking care of the whole person, that includes us as well, taking care of all of us, which means taking care of your soul and whatever that looks like for you. And forgiveness is a big part of spirituality because there's a sense of letting your heart and your mind move on from tragic things. And I think that can be especially important for your students to learn or anybody who's listening that we deal with we deal with some very hard things. We have patients that hurt us, who attack us. Uh, you know, I've been physically harmed on the job. I have been verbally abused on the job. And how do you forgive people in those moments, you know, and move on? Because if you, if you can't, there's a certain darkness that starts to surround you and it can be crippling, you know, and there are some very tragic happen you know we had unfortunately you know after I left there was that one nurse who got attacked at Penn State I was you know heartbroken to hear that but there's a sense of moving on from the hard things whatever's going on in your life outside of nursing or inside of nursing um yeah it's such a crazy paradigm to think about it that way you know yeah that when when you are taking care of the whole person and we 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 attempt to as nurses a lot 
they don't have to have a set religion to be spiritual or to be faithful to something. Yeah. I think I, I think I see that a lot in in death. Uh, there was one moment that I'll never forget. A patient was going. She they were on this brink of of passing when they're in the final moments. They didn't have any family, but they did have a recovery network. Mm. And recovery networks can be strongly spiritual and yeah. based on a religious doctrine, which is okay. Um, if that's for you, that's great. For her, it was. And the support crew came to support her and made this circle around her. And I will never forget the moment that they sung this Leonard Skinner song. And after that was done, she passed away. And I thought that is, it is so moving mm -hmm. when, when all these things come together for this final moment. And I don't cry a lot. And I, and I definitely shed a few tears during that moment. Cause I was just like, man, this is like crazy beautiful. Yeah, it is. And it's, you know, to talk about the dying process. I mean, one of the, we, we give people booklets and all this stuff. We walk them through, you know, family members, especially. And one of the phrases that we tell people to say to their loved ones as they're passing is, um, I forgive you. Will you forgive me? And I, I always tell people, it's not you bringing up old grudges, you know, it's not the time to start fights or anything, but it's a sense of, even if there was nothing wrong, it is just a sense of if there was anything left unfinished, it gives you and your loved one a sense of moving on, which is what can keep people here. Um, and I saw that my one of my closest patients just passed away the other morning. It was very hard for me. Um, I had to take a, this is why I'm taking today off. So we were very close. She was an East Coaster as well. Pan Am stewardess. She was, she had lived this incredible life, but she had a lot of hurt in her life. And her children were just so phenomenal with trying to get her to a place of forgiveness. And because she felt so much guilt about, she felt like her, she failed her kids and her kids are these incredible human beings. And I was like, you did not fail them. Like, do you see these three people? Like they are wonderful human beings. And, but it really, it kept her here for longer than it was supposed to, because it took her a while to be able to give herself the permission to go because she felt so much guilt and her kids continued to tell her, like, we forgive you. There is nothing that we hold on to against you or for you. You know, we know how much pain there has been. And so that can, you know, cause pain, pain is what keeps people here longer. And pain doesn't just mean physical pain. We all have trauma in our lives and you don't just stop having trauma when you start dying. You know, when you enter, even if, even when people aren't actively dying and they're on hospice, but they are declining, that trauma will carry through. And you can see that we especially see that in our veterans, which breaks my heart is that we have people who are veterans. We're getting down to the last, you know, couple World War II veterans. We know that those people that generation is less and less these days, but you'll see it um, when they start to really kind of get into the phases of transitioning and, and getting closer to their time is, you know, they have a lot of agitation, anxiety, and you can see them living through their PTSD. And it's just like, oh, good. You know, I don't want you to live in your yeah, final. No, I, I, I do see it. Um, and I think perhaps talking about forgiveness, they weren't able to express some of their things that they've dealt with 
goodness, yeah. During those stressful periods. Yeah, and this is my grandfather, um, my dad's dad, um, and not to be a, a downer on this, um, lied about his age um, to escape an abusive home. So he was 16 when he actually entered the army in World War II served at Iajima, one of the worst Pacific theaters out there as a teenager, went through all these horrible things, um, you know, saw things, and then, you know, went to Korea, you know, um, he was incredibly brilliant, was second seat in math at West Point, actually helped build some of the first space shuttles. He was actually good friends with some of those first astronauts. And um, he ended up taking his life when I was five. Yeah, he would, um, I don't quite remember him, but I remember my father talking about just the pain that he had and he could tell, um, unfortunately my dad's mother passed away from polio complications, um, in the seventies when my dad was 14. And so it was just, he never got to express the pain that was in his heart and it did eventually bring him to take his own life. And I think we underestimate the spiritual pain that we, we, carry with us, not just physical pain. And it's a part of that forgiveness, not being able to express those emotions. And that is so important in hospice to be able to express your feelings and what's going on. I always tell people, do not hide what you are feeling from me. I need to know what's going on in your head and not that I'm a or anything, but I need to know where you are because that can either help or hurt the dying process. I think, I think you raise a really good point that I've attempted to bring up a couple times, not only with my students, but also with some of my coworkers is that you have to practice the art of not self-judging mm-hmm. and don't be judgmental on yourself by thinking thoughts or by going through an experience where you feel like you're the only one and you feel guilty about it, like survivorship guilt. And don't be afraid to talk to people yeah. about something because more times than not somebody's going through it or has been through it and there's such a need to to practice this self-love of saying to yourself it's okay that you've gone through things it's okay that you've felt certain ways such as anger sadness pain frustration you know really horrible things that you don't want to feel and letting it go as you process those emotions yeah, no, because, exactly. Yeah, because when when you're a nurse and, and starting out to be a new nurse, you're going to experience so many things. Like I, I told my students this semester, so we had students that did virtual clinicals, students that did in-person clinicals. And I said to, the, to my students that were in-person, you don't know the value of what you are actually seeing mm-hmm. because you're experiencing communication styles you're experiencing frustration from people that are that are going to talk to you about their frustrations. You're experiencing how to talk to somebody and how to accept failure or mistakes or defeat. And you're going to be a part of really difficult things that you're not going to always get in a virtual learning environment, but you will definitely get some of in a real life environment. I don't know what the future holds, right, for, for clinicals, but yeah, <laughs> but for those aspects, and that's probably one of the more important podcasts is this one because if you know if everything goes to virtual clinicals next semester, at least they'll have something like this to kind of go back to and, and hear you know what what this might be like for them. Yeah, 
So you've lived in everywhere. Boston, Boston, Austin. Do you ever think about that? You lived in Boston, Austin. Anyway, but in Boston and Austin, Hershey, Chicago. When you moved to Chicago, how different was that for you of an experience from living in both Philadelphia area and Hershey area? Because it's vastly different in the Midwest, or so I'm told. But how different of of care metrics were? Was anything more important for patients that you find differently out in Chicago? Yeah, I think one of the benefits of living on the East Coast is that there's so much just research. Look at Penn State, look at Penn, look at Boston. You know, you have all of those uh, academics around you and they're just churning out research. It's a huge part of life. You've got Jefferson, their system is so progressive. They, you know, they're moving forward with all these new things and progressive medicine is much more of a common theme along the Eastern you know, seaboard. And when I moved out here to the Midwest, you know, I knew I was moving back into an area that I was slightly familiar with. I had gone to college here. Um, and I knew the differences already of the way I talk, the way I present myself. I'm much more open, a little bit more brutally honest than they like. Um, <laughs> I've been told sometimes to keep my thoughts to myself. So, uh, <laughs> um, I think, for care, Northwestern, so that's the hospital I worked for, was Central DuPage Hospital, and they are under the Northwestern Medicine System. And Northwestern, obviously, one of the best medical schools in the country, but it's a rather new system, you know, buying these hospitals. They only bought CDH, I think, in the last 10 years, because when I went to college, it was still a little community hospital, nowhere near as busy as it is now. And I think they're just slightly behind the curve on progressive medicine and palliative care and hospice. They're starting to catch up, but it was something I noticed that just was not talked about was hospice or palliative. Yeah. And I felt like we were kind of behind the eight ball on certain things, especially with some of our cancer patients that would come into the neuro unit. You know, they're on their like fifth Clio and things are just not, they're on that they're kind of on that final plateau of they're losing more function, bodily function. And nobody's ever talked to them about the dying process and the fact that glioblastomas are unfortunately a life-limiting cancer. There's not much that can, you know, you can do, you can continue to do surgery, but there's a point where surgery is not going to do much. And just nobody had had the discussion. I'm certainly not going to be like, hey, have your doctor talked to you about the fact that this is limiting? <laughs> you're on your fifth surgery and you're about to go to rehab for like the sixth time. And this has happened in two years, you know, and they're just, they're talking about the poor quality of life that they had because they're in and out of the hospital and they had never talked about palliative. Um, and so I think that's vastly different because I have a much more holistic uh, view of care, you know, taking care of the whole person. Whereas that's not as common out here. It's definitely becoming more common. Um, they're kind of catching up, but that was just something I noticed that was very different in my care was that there was definitely still more of a focus on just the body and the medical care, the mechanics of it all, instead of like the spiritual, the mental health aspect and looking at the whole life and what quality of life means. So, cause those were some very serious conversations is when you have somebody that probably is not going to survive off the ventilator, you know, well, it's like, do we trach them? And do they just go to a long-term care? You know, do they go to an LTAC? And it's like, well, what kind of quality does that look like? Especially if the person's younger. Yeah. Those are very 
conversations we had you know we had moms you know people small children and you know you get those gosh awful hemorrhagic strokes and you're just you're having to look at a family of a 30 year old you know 30 something year old woman who's got a four-year-old and you're like what's the quality of life going to be if they're tricked and they're just sitting in an LTAC you know what do you and letting people speak for themselves as well you know really respecting people's autonomy and what does quality of life look to them that was very different Mm -hmm. in the midwest because there's just um especially where we live we're in wheaton we are in i think my husband contests this because he's from grand rapids um but he grew up here as well in wheaton and i think there are the most churches per square mile here in wheaton than there are where else in the world but my husband said grand rapids apparently might be number one so um (laughs) that's amazing yeah so there's definitely a lot more spiritual aspect to a lot of my patients and that has actually helped we have when I have hospice patients I've had hospice patients who we were family connected through Wheaton and through alums and it's um, very interesting to see that people with um more spirituality are more open to hospice and I'm not judging those who, you know, are struggling through hospice, but it's just something I've noticed. And that's not even Christians. We've had Hindus, we've had, you know, the Jewish community. Yeah. Certain aspects to being spiritual and understanding quality of life and what can hospice do for you with, in regards to that. I feel like you just explained why you're so passionate about hospice care. So like so well, (laughs) <laughs> because you, you told me before, you're like, I have found my calling and I'm just like, okay, <laughs> like good for you for finding hospice as your calling, because it's so, it's not the same, right? It took me I got it. <laughs> right. It's not the same in Pennsylvania as it is in Illinois. And there's so much potential for you to really do some great things out there. I mean, in my mind, partnering with churches sounds like a fabulous idea of beginning the discussion of what does it, what does quality of life mean to you? Mm-hmm. Perhaps because there's such a faith-based community out that way in different religious sects, which I think is very important. And, you know, I tend to have the conversation, no matter what the diagnosis is with my patient, that whatever you choose from this step forward, because stroke is, stroke is usually a very damaging diagnosis. Mm-hmm that is more physical than emotional, but carries a higher burden of emotional disability. And it's very important to me to, to, to have a conversation with them that says, moving forward, you need, to make, you need to make choices that are in the best interest of your quality of life. Mm-hmm. No matter what that is, it doesn't have to be a cancer diagnosis. It could be you diagnosed with diabetes type two, which, in I think a large part of people's minds is quote unquote, not that big of a deal. In my mind, it's a very big deal. Yeah. But I think because we've normalized people having diabetes is probably not the big of a deal to a lot of people who get that diagnosis. However, it still is important to discuss what your quality of life looks like in these next steps of having diabetes. You know, yeah. you're, you're pre-diabetic now, but you could transition to full diabetes in the future. And then you could transition to ha- needing dialysis care yeah. after that. So what does that look like for you? Are you comfortable with that pathway of your life? You know, and I think that at least for, from what I've seen, when we've partnered with our 
um, our clergy services at the hospital. It's much of it's more of a better outcome and a better discussion to help people with bereavement of different aspects. Bereavement from a new diagnosis again does not have to be cancer diagnoses, but bereavement of of some sort of emotional burden that they that they carry with them. And I think that that's such that's such an important aspect for students to learn, is that we often miss the spiritual component and this and the psychosocial component of patient care a lot. Yeah. Because our focus is so clinically based and there's not a really good method of assessing somebody's psychosocial, spiritual being, mm-hmm. as you will. There's a checkbox, of course, right? Yeah. And it says, we'll give you a consult to spiritual care or whatever that looks like for your hospital. But it doesn't necessarily help with needing, meeting that, that patient's needs for the long, long term. And then there's a, a really big, um, a really big judgment is not the word I want to look for, but mindset that palliative care means death. Palliative care does not mean death. And that's one of the biggest things that I try to communicate with people and say, you know, palliative care is there to reduce the burden that you're going to feel from something that's happened to you or your family. And I think that you know, in terms of hospice care and palliative care, they're like best friends, of course, because that's where you experience perhaps the most um, differences of paradigms of what you believe and what you thought was real, what's not real, and just these crises that happen. And that's when it becomes most important to, to do that, but it's really important to do it on point of admission when your patient gets admitted to the hospital. Yes. Boom. Yeah, no, that's hitting the nail on the head. It's, I think that's one of the things that, you know, Penn State did so well was upon admission or, you know, a new diagnosis. They were like, palliative, come here, be with us. You know, we will introduce you. Whereas here, when I was at CDH, palliative didn't get involved until it was, hey, we're going to compassionately extubate. And this is what it's going to look like. And I just felt like we were like, we're trying to play catch up. And at that point, it's too late, you know, and I feel like we were kind of not failing our patient families, but I just felt like we could have been in a little bit earlier or just could have done better the next time. Yeah. Yeah. And I just, you know, that was something that I loved about Penn State was just that palliative was so involved so early. And there was just a mindset that, yes, as you talk about diabetes, let's just talk about any chronic illness, you know, CHF, COPD, you know, those are as we've normalized them, which is good because we don't want to make, you know, as you said, we don't want, but we also know that they are life-limiting illnesses and it's the things that they eventually lead to, you know, as you said, diabetes with eventually leading to diet, you know, possibly leading to dialysis or even with hypertension, you know, those things. And it's like, okay, what, I remember reading about a doctor who was talking about with a patient having COPD And he was like, what are the things that you imagine yourself doing now with COPD? And she was like, I'm just going to miss taking walks with my grandson. And he was like, okay, so it sounds like your family's really important. And she was like, oh yeah, I love my family. I love spending time. And he was like, that's what we're going to focus on. He's like, I, you know, cause she had also been a smoker and he was like, that's what your focus is, is not to control the COPD, but to focus on having those walks with your grandson. And that's probably such a stress relief that perhaps made her treatment for COPD that much better. 
that, yeah, she ended up quitting smoking and she did not have to use oxygen for longer than she thought. It was just this amazing, like, oh, if I focus on what I want, that's not medically based. I think about my day and my loved ones. There was much more of like a motivation than just the clinical of you need to stop smoking or you need to take these pills to help, you know, right. with your and now that we've put you on a steroid, you now need to watch for A, B, C, D, and E, you know? Right? <laughs> Peeling skin, staying up at night, being yeah. angry and hungry all the time. Right? Oh my gosh, yeah. <laughs> so that's, I think that's one of the things that, especially in hospice, once somebody has made that tr- transition, you know, we do get patients who, um, Seasons, the company I work for is actually a nationwide company. Um, they're in King of Prussia, actually, their main office. Um, Hey, if you ever went to be back, you got a company to work for, you know? Hey, that's the plan is that uh, my husband works for Chick-fil-A and he's on the track that, you know, he eventually hopes to own a Chick-fil-A and um, we might have to move to Atlanta. And I was like, well, there's an office down there. I'll just transfer. Like, great. great. You know, if you have to live somewhere for certainly a corporate job like that, that's, that's pretty phenomenal. Yeah. And, and uh, they have all the free chicken you can have. Oh, hey, it's amazing. I... I cannot stop eating it. I, I, you never get tired of it. Those fries are just addictive. So I'm, <laughs> that's usually what I do at the end of my day. If I have a stressful day, I roll up and they're like, oh, it was that kind of day, wasn't it? And I was like, yes, just hand me the fries and <laughs> I'll be in the park with the dippy sauce, please, with the dippy sauces. Oh yeah. My husband said for Christmas, he's getting me one of those things that like you attach in your car to the vent and it has yes. yes. <laughs> They're on Etsy. They're cheap. They're like eight bucks. Yeah, I cannot wait for that. That'll be a great lunch break. Oh, that's amazing. Oh. So really quickly, I want to go back to um, one of the biggest things that you discussed, which was your ADHD. I also have ADHD for people that don't know. Um, I recently, I just, yeah, woo. Um, I just did a, a talk for essential oil nurses. Shout out to them. And I did a discussion of, of you know, how to kind of like finding, finding your own voice and your own success and how to really organize yourself, which for me as somebody with ADHD was super difficult to do. Oh yeah. Um, I did, wasn't, I wasn't diagnosed until I was like 20 years old. I think I was in my first degree of, of LaSalle. So somewhere around then I was diagnosed and I, I was diagnosed because I found myself really not doing well in school and not really finding the focus that I probably knew I could, but I was also really young. And I don't know that I wanted that focus, if that makes sense. Cause I was like, I was like, college is great. <laughs> Going out, you know, doing all that stuff is great. Playing lacrosse is great. You no know, traveling. It's great. What, who needs school? Not that I knew, not that I didn't know that school was important, but it was like really, really, you know, I was like, oh, it's so exciting. Anything exciting, right. Catches my eyes and moves me in that direction. And so when I entered nursing school at Westchester, I found myself struggling again, but was serious about finishing my degree in nursing. And I was mm-hmm. like, I, I need to reach out to the people at the disability office who were fabulous. Um, but what was your experience like after, after you went in, into nursing school and you graduated as a nurse, was it difficult to then be a staff nurse with ADHD? It was. And there was a pride component. I, my brother kind of grew out of his ADD and, or I guess now we're calling it ADHD without hyperactivity, excuse me, sorry, you know, 
shout out to the new DSM or whatever. They keep I'm changing. still hyperactive for those listening. <laughs> yeah, I'm ADHD with the H, with a giant H in the middle. And so you can't, oh my gosh, my poor mom. Shout out to her and how much effort she put into helping me through this. But it was tough because I didn't want to take my medication because I thought when I graduated nursing school, I was... I was an adult. It wasn't like I was 22. I was 20. I was going to be 26. Like I was closer to 30 than I was 20. And there was a pride component where I was like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do night shift and not have to take my medication because I should totally be fine. I'm on my feet all day. But there was a safety aspect to that because when you're passing out medications and if you have a hard time organizing yourself, And especially as I've done more research with adult women with ADHD, there is a large emotional component to being a woman with ADHD and it comes. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Oh, no, no, no. It is. And you feel, I don't, you know, I don't want to speak to your experience, but mine was, I was so emotionally labile. I was like, what is wrong with me? You know, I, I feel like I'm out of control. And my mom was really good about trying to normalize it in the way to not say that something was wrong with me or that I had done something wrong, you know, like I could get myself together. And so I made a med error on Christmas day and it was not a big med error. It was barely a med error. I called the doctor in tears and he was like, I had given too much of um, an antibiotic, but it was like a very, not like it wasn't even really antibiotic. It was almost like Pepto-Bismol, something similar. And he was like, good, maybe you finally knocked it out of her. She was a rather large woman. And I'm in tears, you know, like I was like, I made my first midair. I'm so stupid. And I was like, that scared me enough that it was like, your pride needs to go off and just start taking the medication again. And I noticed just how calmer I was. I would walk into my days and it didn't matter what was going on the floor. It was like, okay, it's going to be okay. Whereas if I don't, especially in hospice, um, if I forget to take my medication and like I walk into a nursing facility and especially right now with COVID, there are so many emotions. There are, there's so much stimulation that I will be exhausted in two hours just from trying to handle not only my own feelings, but the energy around me. Um, and I noticed that with my medication and with, you know, it's also, there's the component of talking about it being, you know, talking to my husband being like, okay, I'm, you know, I'm feeling these things right now. And I feel a lot more control and I can take the day with (laughs) some more, uh, clear-headedness. Whereas when I was off my medication or not doing the little tricks that I learned as a kid to kind of help refocus myself, the day would just be complete chaos. So I wasn't good at delegating. I wasn't good at communicating. And with my medication, with the tricks that I learned from therapy as a child, um, and I'm still learning as I'm trying to do more research um, about adult women with ADHD, it's a lot better. Those days are a lot better. That's awesome. Yeah, I I definitely did not have similar emotional responses, but there is a there's a heightened there's this heightened response to things that you either think that you're in trouble when you're not, and you think that you've caused the worst thing in the world, and there can be guilt, and there can be this like overwhelmingness, this overwhelming feeling of just overwhelmingness, stress. 
and loss of sleep. Yeah. At some point I had to tell myself, I just don't care. Not that I didn't care, but telling yourself to not care was a really impactful thing to me because they're to like for in life, you only have 24 hours, perhaps 16 hours of those 24 you're awake to do something. And if you can't get things done, you got to learn to let it go. Yeah. Or just put it on the shelf for tomorrow or pass it along. I think one of the biggest things that we've done is learning how to hand things off to the next nurse and not feeling guilty about having to do everything at that moment. Oh yeah. Whatever, whatever that could mean for for you as a nurse, because it's different for everybody. But for example, there's this component of receiving a patient perhaps at 6.30 p.m. If, you're, if your shift ends around 7 p.m. and you've got to chart 9,000 things and you've got to put IVs in and you've got to get labs and it's like, you don't. You can pass it along safely to the next person because we're a 24-hour service. Yeah. That was a big thing that I think helped my ADHD. But that wasn't me. That was a big leadership change. But there's other components of it too. There's There was, there's the notion that, you know, I tend to do a lot of things in my life. That's that's no hidden secret. I know. <laughs> of Nicole Sunderland. Um, <laughs> and I think that there's this notion that either I do too much or I'm overwhelmed or that there's no possible way that one person can absorb everything and be in control of everything at once. And if you've learned enough about your own ADHD and your own disorganized ways, which we all do. Everybody with ADHD has this disorganized way, or should I say that other people perceive it as disorganized because we kind of organize our things our own way, right? We're, we are our own thing of, of OCD. But I think that what happens is that you need to develop your own system of organizational skills, and you need to develop the things inside of you that are most important that you can handle right then and there that can, that can be handled that day. And then the things that are least important that perhaps might not be so worryful to you and rank those, because if you all rank the, everything that you've done in your life as the most important thing, you're, you're going to, you're going to burn out as a nurse, you're going to burn out and you are going to not survive. And it's okay for things to not be done on time in terms of non-medical things. Um, I want to stress that because things are very timely in hospitals, so don't take that the wrong way. <laughs> but other things, so for so for instance, like a research council uh, project, right, or a deadline for an abstract, or something like that. There are hard deadlines for things, but don't give yourself too much of a guilt if you don't get it done. Make it better for next time. You know. Yeah. Also, make friends with people and reach out. I've learned that. You know, collaboration is a great thing. Knowing how to do collaboration is great. Yeah. People with ADHD often often have a, a different level of intelligence that is a little bit to the left of things, shall we say? <laughs> <laughs> and a different way of thinking that doesn't make us any less intelligent than your person without ADHD. But it does make us heightened to certain things that perhaps our intelligence can be made fun of. Perhaps our intelligence can be taken advantage of. And for that reason, you need to collaborate with people so that you can kind of like express yourself to different people 
Yes. And thus everybody can come together and work together to make things happen. Kind of, kind of like research council. I, I know I'm on this research council thing a lot, but I feel like we've had, we had a really good collaborative environment where A, it was a psychological safe space. Yes. And B, you were able to discuss things in ways that didn't hold blame on yourself. And also your due dates were kind of like, okay, that's yeah. great. With, with thoughts, with our tater tots. With so. thoughts. Oh my God. <laughs> I, I couldn't make our last our last uh, research council meeting, and I was still brought up with with the notion of I could get tots with our with our holiday gift certificate that we got because we can't have holiday parties, so they gave us a gift certificate which is fabulous, and they were like, oh Nicole can get her tots. It's like I have reached the level of acknowledgement in my organization where people know me for for things such as tots. We want the day. That's, that was the best thing was just research council and your tots. It was my tots. And nobody got upset about that. Everyone was like, yeah, there's tots. And Nicole loves her tots. Yeah. Well, that's just a, there was a general consensus that we agreed with what you were, what you wanted. We, we would follow you there. <laughs> but you didn't have to. Like, it wasn't like I ran the group. I did not. But everyone was like, oh, yes, tots. Yes, we, we voted. We voted and we were all for that. So because who doesn't like tots? Let's start there. Goodness. I know when you talk about different intelligence, I think the the story that I tell people about what really clued my mom and to me having ADHD was I was being evaluated. I didn't just get evaluated as a psychologist. I saw a nurse, I saw a pediatric neuro psychologist. I saw like all these pediatric neuro doctors. And one of them was asking me questions just to make sure that it wasn't like a developmental delay. And she goes, and I was about three or four. And she said, well, Kirsten, do you know any animals? And I said, no. And she got a little worried because she was like, okay, at this stage, you should know cat, dog, you know, just developmentally. Those are the things that you should start knowing. And as we're talking, she's like, okay, well, what's this? And I was like, well, it's a cat, you know, it's a dog. And she was like, well, you, you know, but you don't know any animals. And I said, yeah, but I'm not friends with the dog next door. I don't know him. I had understood, do you know any animals? <laughs> do you personally know any animals? Are you friends with any animals? Well, of course I'm not friends with a horse next door or down the way. Come on. <laughs> I know. And we didn't have pets, but, you know, at this point. And so she comes out and tells my parents, like, we're pretty sure your daughter has ADHD because the way that she interprets things is vastly different. Oh, that, that's such a good, that's such a good statement. The way you interpret things is different. Yeah. And because it can sometimes, and you have to acknowledge that because you have to be willing to say you're sorry to your patients, because sometimes when your patients, I, when I had patients kind of explain things to me, I would get confused and be like, well, what do you, you know, ask clarifying questions. That's one of the most important things is that <laughs> I, I know that I understand things differently if somebody asks me and if I'm very, you know, if I'm not on the right trail or, and I want to ask and be like, well, did I understand that correctly? What did you mean? Did you mean this? Or did you mean, you know, did you mean B? Is it A or B? And people, you know, if you're willing to open yourself up to the fact that you've got ADHD and sometimes you just interpret things a little differently, you know, people are, you know, most of my patients have been very willing to be like, oh, this is what I meant. You're okay. Hey. I'm literally cracking up because there, there is an aspect of my life where things, things somebody says and the things Nicole hears. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and 
And I am very honest when I misinterpret something and want to clarify <laughs> something. I mean, this has happened three times and the, and, the per, and the person that I say this to, it's many people, not just one person, but the person, um, I'm always like, did you say this? And they just like laugh hysterically because that's not what they said at all. And it's something usually inappropriate, but I have to clarify because this is how I heard it. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like a really good friendship but bonding moment in my mind. It is because people see you as vulnerable and it's like, well, I am not a nursey God. <laughs> right. I'm, I'm just a human, I, a human I, with ADHD <laughs> that hears things and, you know, <laughs> This is, what I, this is what life is. Keeps it green. Yeah. My mom calls it Kirsten speak. <laughs> Sometimes the way I communicate is a little off. So I was a little bummed. Um, you know, when I grew up and had to move out of the house, I was like, who's going to interpret for me? Because I'm going to be lost out here because I do not understand the general population. So my mm -hmm. husband going to interpret for me. <laughs> my husband has had to take this role on and it's been hysterical because he'll be out in public with me. And I, and this is something that people with ADHD should know and people who, who don't, sarcasm is not something that we always read well or tone. And sometimes I definitely misinterpret like tone. And it's like, well, are you being sarcastic? Are you being mean? And my husband will have to intervene. Like if I go to a store and the clerk is, I can't understand what's going on. And he's like, no, 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 she's not, you know, the clerk's not being mean to you, you know, don't worry, you're not hearing it correctly. And I was like, oh, okay. You know, so my husband's had to take on this role of Kirsten speak and translating the <laughs> human behavior. So he's doing a good job, you know, I, great. I love him. I have never met him, but I love him. I know. I'm so bummed. I never got to meet you. I was so like, I just wanted him to come to the hospital and, you know, you could take him to research council. We'd eat tots, you know, and he's having a great time like. with tots. And eggs yeah. and bacon, but the tots were the best. That's, oh, yeah. That's such an important, it's such an important part that you just brought up is tone and understanding somebody's tone about things. And I, that's one of the things that I really had to work on was, was, you know, so many people work in a hospital setting and everyone's communicating in their own specific way, either because of where they came from, who they are, um, their cultural beliefs, perhaps they have an accent of a different way. Like I have a Delco accent apparently all the time. <laughs> and what? You can't escape it. You can't escape it. No, it, you can take the girl, you can take the girl out of Delco, but you can't take the Delco out of the girl. <laughs> what they say. But uh, you know, you have to kind of take things objectively and ask yourself, what did they really mean by this statement? Yes. Especially in really critical moments of patient care, yeah. such as intubations, such as we have to do a rapid response, yeah. such as we're doing high quality CPR. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of times directness is taken as yelling. And a lot of times things can get much more hype than what they need to be with yes. more correctness. But that's such a good reminder to those that, that do have a cog disability that tone and directness can often be misguided as somebody's yelling at you. Yeah. yeah. I when I codes, when I went to the ICU, we had an amazing you know, clinical nurse leader. And when she ran codes, I had to get used to, 
she wasn't yelling at me. She was trying to direct what was going on while I was giving, you know, the high quality CPR. I'd be in there like trying to do chest compressions. And I'm like, is my boss yelling at me? Like, am I not doing something? And you can't be like that in that moment. And I learned very quickly, like, turn it off. This is, this is her time to direct. Don't worry about yes. this is the moment to, you know, and it was once I let that go, things went very much more smoothly for me. It was like, I knew what to do, how she was communicating. And those codes went a lot better for me, which I know, I don't want that to sound selfish. Like I'm focusing on myself in a code, but you have to know. It's so important to do that. Yeah. Because you have to know yourself during a code because you have to be so in tune with what's going on and also yourself to be able to be an effective part of that code team. Yeah. And I feel like you have to know yourself in terms of not only codes, but also in ICU care. And yeah. also perhaps even in med surge care where your patient acuity, patient acuity, patient, um, I guess patient acuity because that matches how like, you know, patients to nurses to your ratio of care, I should say. That you need to know yourself when you are gonna be busy and have to do a lot of tasks at once. Yes. Because yeah. med surge care, ICU care, they each have a lot of tasks to do yeah. for patient care. Heightened acuity is the difference between those two. And you find yourself in the moment of coding somebody, you're giving CPR, you're, you, your focus is literally just CPR. And that's what I try to teach my students all the time. It's like, if you are giving CPR, that is your only focus. And you need to listen to people who are directing you to slow down, speed up, go deeper, whatever. Yes. Because- yeah that's somebody's life. Yeah. You know, people are going to be direct and loud, hopefully not yelling loud, but they're going to be loud because they want to make sure that their voice is clear and heard and distinct. And in 10 years of doing ICU care, that's the most, I would say, important lesson that I have for people is that everybody needs to be on the same page at the same time to save lives. Cause that's the thing that matters the most is that you need to save that life. Yeah. And even let's, let's talk about hospice, you know, where it's, yeah, we're not technically saving a life, but if we're not all communicating well and on the same page, it does not look good. Care of your point does not look good. It's not executed. And yeah, sure. Hospice is not as tasky, you know, with, you know, it's not like I got to flush an IV or do this now. Sometimes, you know, you're changing colostomy bags or making sure Foley's are set. But if you're not on communicating well in a very tense moment, care plans can just go to the wayside and then it's like chaos ensues and that you, you never want chaos, no matter where you are on the, on the spectrum of life, whether you're in the NICU, pediatrics, med surge, ICU, or at the end of life, chaos is never a good thing. No, it's not. And it, in, in, those, in those very delicate moments of hospice care and death and dying, that's probably where it becomes most important um, to make to, to perhaps be very diligent on the care plans that you make make sure that your communication is consistent within this patient's care because you could have them for months as your mm-hmm. patient or weeks or days that if you're not communicating effectively and directly it just it can just be very detrimental I could imagine with anxiety with agitation with just really yeah painful moment of hospice care that a patient can receive. That's just, that would just not be nice. Not be nice. 
No, and you know, the point of hospice care is, you know, and this is true of every aspect of nursing, no matter if you're in the hospital on whatever floor out, it's all about quality of care. Mm -hmm. And I want to provide quality care in hospice. And if I'm not communicating well, if I'm not educating well, it's not going to be a good death. And that is one of the biggest goals in hospice is a good death. And there's a part, sometimes you have to accept that there are going to be bad deaths. I've, I've been at deaths that were not good, no matter how hard we tried, but at least I knew that I tried, I educated, I over-communicated. I, you know, was with the, with the family, with the patient, you know, you can try, but most of the time, if you communicate well and the education is done properly, everybody's on the same, you know, page for a care plan, the deaths are just, you know, it's a, it can be a beautiful time and that's what we want. Yeah. Yeah. We, and, and we try our, our best in the hospital setting as well to oh, make yeah. sure that time is very peaceful. Co- COVID has certainly run a curveball to what we can do within a hospital setting. And it's a very unique time that we're living in. You know, there's going to be a lot more of recommendations and research coming out, I think, on COVID and what that means for death and dying and hospice yeah. care comfort care measures and palliative care measures and people at the bedside and things that, you know, what, what does that look like in a post post? We're not even post COVID yet, but in a post COVID world. Yeah. That can make an impact for a positive patient death experience. Yeah. It's going to be, it's going to be unique. And, and after working for a couple months in our COVID units, it doesn't get easier, but you know, certain things are getting better in many ways. So hopefully this translates to hospice care and and maybe that gets better within the next coming years. Yeah. I think COVID has definitely had a, it's, it's impact on hospice. You know, I'm, you know, with the Facebook post that I wrote about watching a family member have to say goodbye through the window over my phone that I had to keep in a biohazard bag just for infection control for my own safety. Cause I didn't, don't really want to ruin my phone with the germicidal wipes, but at the same time, I need to be safe for myself. And just watching him say goodbye to his mother over the phone. You know, I'm, I'm usually, I've got the stoic suite in me, so I'm not too emotional at the bedside, but this one hit me where, you know, he just, he, all he wanted to do was hold her and he was telling her what a wonderful mother she was. And it got me. Because there she is talking, you know, she's not talking at this point. She's unresponsive, but she's still breathing. And, still, you know, yeah, he can hear and you, her. And you know very well, we both know as nurses that people can hear you within their last moments. Which is one of the first things I said to him because he was concerned. He was like, well, can she hear me? And I said, yes, it's one of the last. It's what, what's, I mean, I said that in the ICU all the time when people were sedated and intubated. It's like, be careful what you say in front of somebody. Sometimes yeah. people remember what you said. Yeah. And, and they can, and then they can think that the devil's coming after them. <laughs> Yeah, oh, they're sedated and not, you know, not dying in the ICU. Oh, yeah. I remember they were like, did you say something about this? And it was like, oh, I'm an idiot. I was talking about my personal life and dang it. So that was always, yeah, but it was, it was just, it was a little traumatic to, to watch. And, you know, I had been through this a couple of times, but this time it really hit me just watching the little plastic bag, you know, hold up to her ear as he's telling her what a wonderful mother she was and how much he loves her and that it's okay to go. And all because she got COVID, 
you know, and she had been okay the week before, you know, yes, she was declining. It was hospice. I understand that, but she had definitely not been as cool, you know, into the transitioning stage. She was still wakeful eating somewhat. And she she got COVID during hospice. This person. Wow. I've had, I've, I just lost my ninth patient in one month to getting COVID. Um, and it was a little traumatic. Um, at the beginning of November, I had a patient who had been on hospice for, I think, almost a year, still declining steadily, but she had been lovely and she had actually survived um, the Nazi occupation in Poland. She had this amazing story about escaping how, as a child. How do you know so many cool people that have done? <laughs> I know. My grandpa yeah. went to World War II and then he did spaceships. And then this lady survived an encampment. Yeah, it was, her story was incredible, but it broke my heart because I didn't know she'd gotten COVID until her daughter called me, like the nursing facility didn't even call me and she was dead within a week. And I missed her so much. Um, And I just, it broke my heart that that's what happened. You know, she had been on service with us and she was declining appropriately, but she was still getting up and walking and eating. And even though everybody complained about the food at this nursing facility, she was like, I'm so happy to be fed. Look at this food, you know, look at so much food. You know, I never had this much food growing up and you're like, your heart's breaking as she's talking to you. But it was just, it was really sad. And it was just to walk into that nursing facility. The staff were really sick. They were, you know, having to be at home. You know, this was a wonderful staff who worked so hard. And it was just, I saw patients who had been declining appropriately, not at all close to their time, got COVID, were gone in two weeks. And that's what it's been like this whole month. And it's been very tough because it's like, I get calls. They're positive for COVID. They're symptomatic. It's not going well. And it's like, Oh, you know, it's so no much thicker this time too. Yeah. Like it's, just, it's just crazy. I, I try to explain to people as best as I can without getting upset about things because at, at the end of the day, people are people as, as we know, people are people and will continue to be who they want to be, no matter what's going on, no matter if they have congestive heart failure, they're still going to eat a hamburger and smoke. If they have COPD, they're still going to live their lives. They choose to, to, to do that. And that's one of the most important things of being a person. Something in me, though, is very frustrated that there's a pandemic out there and people continue to not listen. I don't, it's not their fault. It, there's a lot of miscommunications from all around yeah. the country happening that is misguiding people in my beliefs that, you know, this is, like either it's not really happening or it is really happening and all this stuff. So hopefully though, we get this under control and can really just calm it down so that you're not seeing people who should be having this, this nice death suffer from additional viruses before their death. Like that just yeah. has got to be something that is so uncomfortable and painful for these people that should just have this nice way of just exiting, you know? It was, that was really tough on me because I saw one patient um, and it's I probably be scarred for the rest of my life. Um, I went in there and it was at a nursing facility. He had gotten COVID and he just was laying there. I mean, barely dressed because he was too hot from the fever. And so they were trying to get him to cool down, you know, um, it wasn't like they were providing bad care. They were just trying to get him to cool down from the fever. Um, and 
he coughed up something I have not seen since the ICU when I was suctioning somebody who had been intubated. And he just, he just looked at me and he just, he looked so tired from coughing, you know, something he had not done. I mean, had never coughed before the other times I had checked, you know, had been with him and here he is just constantly coughing and we're trying to give him morphine to help, you know, get his respiratory rate down, which was working, you know, he did pass away comfortably, but it was hard to watch him suffer from something that had been, that could have been prevented. And, and it, it's, uh, you know, when I was in the ICU, cause I was in the ICU when this all started in Chicago, I had one of the first COVID patients that showed up to our hospital and I'll never forget standing out. We, uh, at that time we were okay in staffing and we could do two nurses for this one patient. And I remember looking through the window of the room at my coworker who was in the room doing some things. And I remember watching the monitor and it was clear she was going septic already. And we're both standing there and she looks at me and I said, yeah, it's sepsis. Like I got to go while she was in the room. I was calling the intensivist going, she's going septic, you know, or want to get in front of this. What do you want us to do? And there was a different, I don't know. At that point, there wasn't many people going, oh, this isn't real or it's just not that bad. And now having watched this patient suffer you know, coughing, like for a cough that they didn't have. And as my one patient coughing up something, I swear was just alien at that point. Um, it hurts. It can be emotionally draining. You know, I have, yeah. it's, it just stinks when you see loved ones saying, oh, well I had it and it wasn't that bad. It was just like the, it was just like a bad flu. This is fine. And it's like, mm, do you know this? <laughs> like it just, there's, I think there's, like there's just a sense of brokenheartedness that we see so much pain right now and it's not being acknowledged. You know, we want to be told like that we're heroes and thank you for what you're doing. And then we've got this side saying, yes. you know, and yeah. it's, which was, which was great for the first like month. Yeah. And it's appreciated. But at the, at the same time, we're 24 seven caregivers and yeah. we've been doing this for hundreds of years. And, you know, it, it's kind of a little bit exhausting to keep being told that you're a hero and then also have people just not give a damn about certain things. Not for, I don't have any specific stories. I mean, I could, but I'm not going to. Yeah, there, right. There's another part of, of COVID that really, you know, I don't think people understand that post COVID sy symptoms are one of the worst things you could get in terms of post COVID pneumonia, post COVID inflammatory responses. So diabetes, clots that happen throughout your body that can damage and perhaps go to your lungs and kill you like you don't know and a whole bunch of other aspects where you're left recovering for months on end if you have a if you have a significant case of COVID that I don't think people really know because nothing people are not talking about it there's no news station reporting on it so it's kind of like this well it's COVID and I've and I've had it because your immune system is probably perhaps better than the other person's immune system that have it you yeah. still, still shouldn't be the, peop the people that spread it like oh I've had it and I might be asymptomatic but that's fine I'll show up to the party and that's yeah. why I think people, people get it mixed up is that they think that because they've had it so mild the other person's not going to have it as bad yeah and it's tough to try to convince you know you can't trying to change people has never worked well for anybody so um 
But when you try to talk to people, you know, there was a young woman out here. I mean, she was on the news. She was my age. She was 29 and she ended up with a double lung transplant. And people were trying to say, well, oh, she must have had an underlying condition. And it's like, no, 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 you can't get a lung transplant if you have an underlying condition. Right. right. Like not how it works, you know? And I had friends who were at, she was at Northwestern Memorial and they were like, you know, they weren't breaking HIPAA, but they were just like, nope, she didn't have anything. This was somebody who was perfectly healthy and went from being her perfectly healthy to needing a lung transplant. You know, that's, that's the scary part is that people are like, well, you're young enough. You'd be okay, Kirsten. And I'm like, sure. You know, I know that I take care of myself, but I don't want to be the 1%. I don't want to be any, you don't even want to have COVID. Like we don't even know what COVID will do to you once you've had it 20 years from now down the line. Well, and I, that's how I describe it to people. It's like, do you, I, I, and I think this is one of those things where, because there's a double-edged sword to not having experienced things as a generation, we didn't, we don't have to deal with polio that much, but I mean, my grandmother died from polio complications and she got polio as a child and she died in her, you know, forties. And I think people underestimate that we've always had viruses that have caused long-term complications. And this is going to be very similar. And it's, I I don't want to deal with the, I don't want to deal with the complications later down. I want to, yeah you know, I I'd like to remain healthy. So it's, it's tough. And I know that, as you said, there's a lot of miscommunication going around, you know, I've seen the Facebook posts and sometimes I just have to turn things off and be like, I just keep scrolling. I don't even, because because at the end of the day, like having productive communication, like we're doing is a whole lot different than having communication, perhaps that people have a specific mindset already. And are not willing to open their minds to other beliefs and systems. And even so, keep attacking a certain mindset. It doesn't matter what side you're on. This happens on all sides, right? Yeah. So it's not necessarily the best platform to have discussions or to present, you know, things. Which is is kind of why I like to try to be just factual to the point. And then, like, I'm out. I'll share a picture. I share a lot of research. But ultimately I don't get involved with debates because debates on a certain platform do not solve anything and it's a private company then they can do whatever they want with my stuff that I put on there so I try not to but yeah, right <laughs> but that's it's a whole other discussion on social media use goodness oh yeah I just want fun pictures of my dogs your right. dog <laughs> videos of puppies my yeah, nephew's cool you know all these things that like You're are right. adorable <laughs> All the stuff that you run and swim and bike, you know, I miss oh God, You should do a triathlon. Oh my God, you should do a triathlon. It's so much fun. When triathlon's open again, I want to, I want to comment there. Don't do a triathlon right now. It's cold out, B. Yeah, and B, <laughs> everything's still cold, still closed. So yeah. So. And it's so cold. I, I mean, so I think, cold. but that, but triathlon literally has helped my ADHD so much because you have to perform your best while having minimal supplies and also be able to do so many things at once and do it well like you have to you just gotta be prepared the entire time and then transition and then do another thing and then transition and then do another thing and finish and somehow learn how to eat and drink in that in that period of time that you do a triathlon it's great I mean I know that people think that I'm nuts but it's literally one of the things that has helped me so much with so much in my life 
Yeah, I love it. That's that's how I describe tennis. I said like tennis is probably the one thing that's helped me get through nursing. It's uh, when you're on the, you know, I, I'm I'm a much better. Your your aunt can speak to this. I'm not the best doubles player because I have no idea what's happening. I'm a bit of a spaz, so yeah. I love doubles because it's much more interactive. But singles is you're on your own. But your aunt has definitely seen me be spastic, and sometimes you got to learn how to organize yourself on the doubles court. You're there and your aunt poaches so much. So I'd serve and she would cut off with a volley. And it was just like, I'd have to learn everybody else's rhythm. And you're just like, okay, I have to organize myself. I need to know what it's like to have three other people on this court with me. So, which I hurt with your aunt because she was always like very, you know, controlled. Whereas I'm like in the back, like, oh my gosh, like I'm running around like an idiot. <laughs> She's always been, she's always been the athlete too. Did she ever tell you the story about how she used to ride her bike to the Edmonds factory and buy a cake and ride it home and eat it, the whole thing? Oh, what? She would, she, my mom told me this story. She would ride her bike to the Edmonds factory, buy a crumble cake, and then eat it, the whole thing, and then ride the bike back. Why does that not surprise me? Right? Like, what? <laughs> oh, the family's great. <laughs> well, Kirsten, this has been amazing. Thank you so much for joining me. Of course. Thank you for taking Fabulous. Oh, absolutely. It's going to be fabulous to launch this. Um, hope to see you again for another episode at some point, because there's a lot that we discussed, and I'm sure people have questions. So hopefully you can join us again for another episode sometime down the line. I would love to, and always feel free, you know, if anybody has questions or, you know, wants to know uh, what it's like to jump around from rehab to trauma to the ICU to a hospice, you know. All the things. All the things, just do the whole spectrum of, of care. As my husband calls it, you're, uh, he says that I'm, I'm too morbid. I worked backwards from the most, you know, optimistic in rehab to the end of the life, end of life. He's, he's called full spectrum nursing, tell him. Yeah. So, but thank you so much. I, you know, I've missed working on research with you and tots and uh, hopefully <laughs> Someday we'll get out, you know, I'll get back home once, you know, COVID, you know, hopefully with getting this vaccine out, hopefully we'll be able to see what we can do with getting home and getting to see you, hopefully see your aunt sometime on the court. Yeah. <laughs> you can spaz out more. It'd be great. Oh yeah. She can just be like, it's fine. She may be 30 now, but it's fine. She's fine. Oh my goodness. All right. Well, thank you so much. Of course, Nicole. I hope you and your dog and your husband uh, enjoy the, the time and uh, happy anniversary to you as well. Oh, thank you. Happy anniversary to you guys too, because you're like soon. Yeah, we're the 15th. So That's uh, awesome. someday soon. That's awesome. <laughs> well, thanks, Nicole. Have a good rest of your day. You too.